My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Brian Kill is a former NFL football player for the New York Giants, Washington Redskins, St. Louis Rams, and Kansas City Chiefs. Brian was also adopted as a baby, and at age 25, he decided to try to track down his birth parents. This episode is different from all previous episodes in several ways. First, I wanted to hear Brian's story in detail, so this episode is significantly longer than a typical episode. And second, this is the first episode that has made me cry, let alone multiple times. Brian's story is emotional, funny, devastating, and inspirational. I hope you enjoy learning from Brian Keel today, because I always do. Well, Brian, it's so great to catch up with you today. And I'll be honest, I think this may be one of the first times I've called you Brian, because to me, you just go by Keel, because, you know, on the football team, you were just Keel. Um, uh, we've, got, we've got a lot to talk about today. And, and this episode will be a little different than some of the others I've done. As you know, uh, I'm interested in, in hearing people's simple, practical underappreciated lessons. And I would like to hear some of those lessons from you today, uh, some that you've learned. But let's go back to the beginning and let's just talk about your story. And we can start at birth because you have an interesting story starting from the very beginning. Yeah, um, I guess I'll just jump right into it. I was born in 1984, June 16th. And um, I was I was born to, I mean, all of this information I didn't find out until later. So, so I, was, I was adopted. And it turns out that my biological mother and father were students at Utah State. He played running back on the football team and she was a dancer, uh, an Aggieette. And uh, he was black, she was white. Um, he was Catholic, she was Mormon. And um, anyway, they, she got pregnant and you know, we'll get into to this as we go, but um, I was placed for adoption and then Ended up just two days later uh, at the Keel family. My Gary and Nancy Keel, that's who adopted me. And um, they're most amazing people in the world. Um, could not have been blessed to have gone to a better family. They had um, three children of their own and then complications arose and they couldn't have any more kids and they ended up adopting six. And uh, getting ready for this, this chat with you today, I've kind of I've been reading different family stories and it's been fun to kind of look back and see the timeline of like uh, the six kids that they adopted. Three of us were babies. Like I was two days old. My sister was three days old. My other sister was uh, like five or six weeks old. And then the other three that were adopted, one was 12, one was 17. And my oldest brother, he he just turned 60 oh um, a couple of days ago. And he was adopted after his mission. Um, he was, so he was 20, 21 when he got, we actually, he and I actually were adopted right at the same time. And I was a baby and he was, he was 21. Um, so anyway, the, the, there's six that were adopted and they, everybody came, even though, you know, there's different ages, they showed up to the family at different times. And so it was, it was kind of fun. I was a baby when, you know, all these different faces were showing up in the home. And so it was fun to today to go back and look at, and see when people showed up and, and um, anyway, that's a mouthful, but that's, that's the brief Brian Keel family 
Okay, so let me get this straight. So three of their own, and how old is the oldest of their own biological children? Um, I have to. I have so many. <laughs> so it's 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 Clistia. So she was. I was just looking at it today. Um, she was born in uh, nineteen sixty nine. So what does that make her now? So about the same age 50, as your oldest brother, who's fifty four. She's fit. So fifty. That makes her fifty four. Is that right? Is that math right? Well, yeah. So younger than the oldest. Yeah, she's younger. She's younger than yeah. She's younger than uh, the oldest who didn't come until like you know 1980, 1984. So sixteen years later or whatever, fifteen years later. Interesting. So, so that's where I say it's kind of interesting, like the dynamics where the age. And where, how old you are, and when you showed up in the family, like it doesn't, it's it's all it's all over the place. <laughs> Hard to probably keep track of. So everybody's just like family. I, I mean, do you do you are some of your siblings more like aunts and uncles, or do you feel like no, we're all siblings, and we still have you know mom and dad at the top, and and we all got here in in wildly different ways, but we're all like, what's that like? Yeah, so that it's funny you. So that's a great question. Um, the siblings are definitely like siblings. So like, take that brother. Um, the, well, his his name's Kevin. So he just, just turned sixty, um, and he's a grandpa. Like he he's he's got like I think he's got five. Um, let's see, he has five. He's about to have seven because um, his oldest son, who's only three years younger than me, so I was an, an uncle when I was three um he's about to have twins so uh my oldest brother kevin is about to have his seventh grandkid so he, he and my depth he and me definitely a brother relationship like lots of competition trash talk um but he's literally old enough to be my dad um but it is a brother relationship and so so that's interesting and then like in terms of the family um I will say just off the bat, the greatest thing that I could say about my parents is that they treated all of us the same. And it was just, it's impressive, really. Um, you would never know who was adopted and who wasn't adopted, albeit four of us have brown skin. Uh, so you could tell that there's, there's two that are adopted and you would lots of times, like people who've known my family for years, um, going back to the same brother, Kevin, you know, he's like, he, my parents are white, he's white. Um, there's lots of people who do, who don't know that he was adopted yeah. because he's, everybody was treated the same and he's very similar to my dad and he acts, talks, laughs, very similar to him. So, um, there are all sorts of different family dynamics and age gaps. And, uh, so in fact, my little sister, she's four years younger than me, so she's younger than her nephew oh yeah who's 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 i said is about to have twins um you know which is that's four kids for him um but yeah so he you know my little sister it has a nephew that's young, that's older than her so it's just a crazy family big age gap everybody fits in and everybody loves each other and it's just just a big uh a big circus so when you're talking with your siblings you said you have how many blood siblings um, 
so and I never knew this growing up. So, um, and we'll get into this obviously, but I, I, I got connected with my biological family when I was 25 and, and, so, and this is another thing too. Um, so sorry to, to sidestep your question. I'll answer, I'll answer your question, but, um, I, I read this earlier today when I was getting ready for this and it was something that I haven't thought about this thought for a while. And it was kind of brought back to me, um, but anyway, I, I always knew I was adopted. I don't remember my parents. Um, I don't remember when they told me that I was, you know, too little to remember. It's just something that I always knew. And it was never an issue They, you know, it was, it was just something that was just, you know, part of who I was. Um, fast forward to when I'm a teenager, my mom, uh, she would get asked by uh, the same. So all of our adoptions went through the church uh, family services and, and they would have these seminars and and panels and and different workshops where people looking to adopt and people looking to place their kids for adopt would come and talk to people who have adopted and she would bring me along and kids who who got adopted they would ask us questions and anyway why am i saying this it wasn't until i was maybe 15 years old at one of these workshops where the idea occurred to me that i had blood brothers and sisters like you just asked and it's just kind of like fascinating to think about, you know, I was, you know, roughly 15 or 16 years old before that idea had ever even wow. came into my mind. Obviously I knew I had biological parents out there somewhere, didn't know very much about them. Um, but I never even thought about the possibility that they, you know, their lives went on and they had other kids that were, you know, that might look like me. Um, Anyway, so that, that's just kind of crazy. Um, never thought about that until then. I'm, I got reconnected with everybody when I was 25. So to answer your question, my biological father, his name is Maurice Turner. Um, after he left Utah, he got drafted by the Vikings. He went to Minnesota. Um, he got married. He and his wife, Karen, they have two boys. So I have two brothers there. And then my my birth mother, her name's Amy. She, she um, is from Ogden. And... Uh, a little more than a year after I was born, she got married to her husband, Brian, and they have five kids. So I have seven biological brothers and sisters, and then I have eight adopted brothers and sisters. So in, in all told, I have 15 brothers and sisters. And this is just a little bit of defense because I, I feel bad like you asked me how old my sister, Clistia, is. And most people, when someone asks them how old one of their siblings is like, it's really easy and quick for them to answer that. But to my defense, when you have 15, it kind of gets jumbled. And so you have to think about it for a little bit. <laughs> so this no doubt puts you in the top 0.001% of the largest families on planet earth. Okay. So brothers and sisters, 10, 10 brothers, 10 brothers and 10 brothers, five sisters. How is it that so many of your brothers are good at sports? So I got to know you through football uh, I'd, I'd like to hear about your interest in sports and your siblings' interest in sports. Maybe you could start with, you know, at what point did you realize, like, hey, I like sports, I'm pretty good at it. And at what point did you realize you've got some siblings that are also pretty good at sports? Yes. Yeah, so, so that's a great question, Nate. And and we can, you know, bef before we we started recording here, we were talking a little bit about that nurture versus nature, and genes and and all that. We can get into that more, but um. To answer that question, it, it really deals with that nurture and nature. And I, I obviously had both. Um, you know, I was I was born to play football. Like I have a football body. 
I have football genes. My birth dad played football. He was drafted. And then, and then I, I come along ra raised in a completely different family and uh, ended up getting drafted. Um, one of my little brothers, um, my birth dad's youngest son, he, he played, he, he still plays. He, he was drafted and uh, he just finished his ninth year. Um, so, so football is in, is in our genes. And then it's also in, in the nurture in the kill family, um, super big sports fans and the biggest sport in our family was football. And so the, the four Keel brothers, um, they all played football um, at some point in time. And my brother, Ed, he, he played and, um, and he was good in high school, um, but he wasn't that big. And it's kind of an interesting story. He went on a mission and on his mission, he grew like three inches and put on like 50 pounds wow. of muscle. And anyway, he, he got, he's one of the few people he, he got a scholarship offer while he was on his mission. Um, and, and so he went to BYU and we were, we were BYU fans. Um, I mean, it was back as long as I can remember actually kind of funny a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at some Cougar club um, information and I saw, and I, I don't know if this is when my dad joined, but this was the first payment that was made was 1987 when I was just three years old. Um, and so we've been Cougar fans, like going way back. We had season tickets. And so I grew up going to those games. And so um, to answer your question, sports, football, it's just always been huge in our family. And then, of course, it, it was it was literally in my genes. And so you're watching your brother Ed play at BYU and your other brothers played in high school. Were they blood brothers, um, those three other kills that played in high school? Um, two of them were so, so, um, my parents had Clistia and then they had Craig and then they had Brandon. So Craig and Brandon are blood brothers and, and they both played, uh, you know, various amounts in high school. Brandon, uh, he played and he went on a mission. And then after his mission, he walked on at BYU and he, so he, he was a walk on at BYU for a couple seasons and he was there with Ed. And then the other brother we've talked about a little bit already is Kevin, and he he was adopted, so he's not a, a blood brother with 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 those other brothers. But um, yeah, all of them played sports and football at various levels, and it was always just huge in our home. And then um, and then Ed and I both were blessed with you know size, and so that that helped us take it further than 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 the other guys. And does Ed know his biological parents? Yeah. So I mean, his story is crazy. Um, and it's interesting, like we're, we're doing this, this podcast and, and, you know, so I have this chance to talk to you and tell you about my story and, um, a few, uh, COVID excuse my, my frame of time. It's probably a few years ago. Now I was about to say a few months ago, but it's probably a couple of years ago. Um, there was a story, uh, some journalists did a story about my brother um and i literally found out things about him reading that story that i never knew and um part of it's because it's it, like his story his story is very different than mine like i was i was two days old when i was adopted um, i didn't know any different he was 12 when he came to oh, our God. family and so he had a completely different experience of early life than i did and and um 
he, he's also biracial, um, black father, white mother. Um, and he, it was just, it's like kind of sad reading his story because it's just really tragic. Like his, 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 he was born. And then shortly after he was born, his mom kind of abandoned him. And so he lived with his dad and, and he has memories of this. He, he, you know, he remembers living with his dad and his dad was nice and was great to him. And, and um, like he was laying on the couch one day when he, you know, he was old enough to remember this and some lady came over and was, and he pretended to be asleep and she was, you know, rubbing her, her fingers through his hair and, and he, he, you know, talking to his, his family. And then she left. And after she left, he was like, who was that? And his dad was like, well, that's your mom. And, um, and he, you know, he remembers this. Wow. And short, shortly after that, she came back and she, um, he ended up going with her and he was, the plan was he was going to like go spend the summer with her or something. And, and she ended up kind of like kidnapping him and took off with him. And, and she like was really dodgy and like severed contact with his dad. And, um, and, and he, and he totally lost contact with his dad and, and she kind of like moved from place to place and she was abusive. She wasn't, she wasn't a very good mother. And, um, he ended up, he, she was that they were at like church and, you know, one of the, one of the other ladies at church kind of saw her being abusive and was like, Hey, uh, if you want us to watch him, you know, we'll, we'll take care of him. And she kind of saw that as an out and she pawned him off on this family. And so he lived with that family and then he went and lived with another family and it's just kind of crazy. And then all of that happened over several years. And then he, he came to our home when he was 12. And like when he came to our home at the time, he kind of thought it was just another stop. Like he didn't really know that he was going to be there forever. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a, it really not even kind of, it is a sad story. It has a great ending though. Cause he, like I said, my parents are amazing and they, they, they brought him in, they adopted him legally and, and just, and treated him like a, a kid. And, and um, if you saw like our family dynamics, other than the fact that he's huge and brown, you would never know that he was adopted because just the way he's treated and, and, um, but it, it's just a fascinating story. And um, long story short, a few years ago, he was able to find his dad. Mm -hmm. And through um, now they have this DNA and, and, um, and so he was able to, he's able to reconnect with his dad. And, and, and so now he, he's able to visit with him. He still lives in, he came, Ed came from Florida. His dad lives in Florida and he's able to visit with him and, and uh, they have a relationship and it, it's, it's, it's a really cool ending to a sad story initially. What saints your parents are and I mean, I just don't know, like, am I just so selfish? Like, it's like, I've got my kids, you know, and, I, and they're everything to me. And then I just worry, you know, like maybe I'm a helicopter parent. Or I just like worry about like, oh, what if I bring somebody else into the home and they disrupt the dynamic? And uh, yeah. I'm just so impressed with your parents. And and this is maybe jumping way ahead. But do you think about adopting children someday? And like, wh where's your head at in, in terms of this? Yeah, Um um, I do, and I'm trying to decide how to answer this question. How honest I want to be. Well, just just um, be honest and and make us all. <laughs> I mean, just be honest. I'll, I so I'll be I'll be honest, and I'll in, in my honesty. Um, honesty is the best policy. So, I'll I will be honest, and my my honesty will will heap 
some of the due praise that my my saintly parents deserve. Um, so to answer your question, yes, like I have thought about adopting. Um, you know, my wife Jessica, we've we've uh, we've talked about it. So kind of our situation, we have three kids. Both of us would like more kids, um, but as she tells me, the baby factory is broken. Yeah, <laughs> and so she. <laughs> She she's the she says that she's mentally, emotionally, and physically unable to produce another child. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think so, we can relate yeah. in our I think we can relate in our household too. <laughs> so she she has PTSD. So so what are our options? Um, and so this is where it's like, how honest do I want to be? So I actually have have a fear, and you you talked about this. Uh, you mentioned this just a moment ago, but I have a fear. Like I I don't know, and this is me who ha- who was adopted. Um, I, to be a hundred percent honest, I don't know that if I adopted a kid, if I would treat him the same as I do my kids. And this is where I was, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I, I dare say this or reveal this, but I'll be honest. Um, I assume that I would, and I, and I, and more than that, I hope that I would, Yeah. but I'm honest enough to like acknowledge, like, I don't know. Um, and that's where I tip my hat to my parents and and all the fabulous people out there that are willing to adopt and bring strangers into their home and then are able to love and treat them no different than their own flesh and blood. And that's where like I, I literally could talk for a month keeping praise on on my parents, Gary and Nancy Kill, and I wouldn't do them the justice that they that they deserve because they, they literally treat us no different. And um, it's just, it's incredible. Like it's just phenomenal. So yeah. So, so for us, yeah, that might happen. It might not happen. I don't know. Um, we'll see, but, uh, but yeah, that's a little bit of honesty and a confessional. <laughs> well, I think that's a great point and not everybody is in the same mental, emotional stage of life, or even has the same abilities to be able to, be an adopted parent, yeah. let alone at it the takes level special people. of it really, It really yeah. does. It really does take special people. Okay. Well, let's uh, continue on with your childhood then. So you're playing sports at a young age. At what, at what point do you realize like, I'm kind of good at this? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I don't know. Um, so the, the story is um, when, when they were picking me up um, that someone, some, social worker mentions, Hey, this, this child's birth father is an NFL running back. Okay. And so that was like the story, you know, all growing up. And I have to, I have to frame this because to really appreciate this, you have to kind of know my dad who adopted me. Um, he, he, um, he's been known to embellish the story <laughs> a little bit, you know, like, he tell let me, I, I mean, I don't, let me, let me say, he tells a good story. Okay. Yeah. And from time to time, he, he may or may not hear some, some details. And, and so why do I say that? So, um, was my, did, did a social worker really say that? Like, it was always kind of like taken with a grain of salt and, um, and people, people were kind of skeptical of it. And, you know, fast forward when we met my my birth father Maurice, and it turned out he was an NFL running back. My dad Gary, he was like, "See, I told you guys." You know, he was like very vindicated. 
for a lifetime um, of embellishments potentially for, a, for what for you thought were embellish, for what you thought were embellishments yeah. yeah so anyway to add to your question like growing up uh, um yes it, I, I i i thought that i had greatness in me and part of it was because of this keel family folklore and and um also there's there's a, a really cool um family video they they, they have on like old vintage uh, camcorder style of them picking me up from the adoption agency uh -huh. and I'm two days old. And it's it's pretty cool footage, but they, they pick me up, they take me home. And at home, you have my proud father holding me and there's like neighbors over and and he says he says he says look at look at this boy's hands you know and he holds up my hands look how big those hands are he's going to be an nba first round pick and this is 1984 so steve young had just got drafted and signed that big like like a uh, historic deal and in this video that my dad literally says oh man steve young's gonna be embarrassed with about the contract that brian gets and, <laughs> and so literally the day that I was, that they got me, there was like this expectation of sports star. And so like to answer your question, like, when did I, I mean, I always like, there was that expectation and there was also like an inner belief. Oh, I came from, I came from one, so I, I can do it too. You know, if I put in the work and that was kind of always my mindset, my whole life was like, well, I came from one. And if I put in the work, I can do it too. So you always felt like you were good and always had high expectations. Uh, you played football. Did you play another? Did you play any other sports, or was football kind of your main focus priority? Football was always the the main sport, and I was kind of a unique, um, kind of like I, I'm. I was always a unique um, athlete, where skill wise, I was kind of a late developer, and um, I was always big. I was always strong, and I was was always fast. Like I was always one of the fastest kids, one of the biggest, one of the strongest. Um, but I wasn't, I couldn't dribble basketball very well. Um, I didn't, I didn't have very good hands when I was little, like to catch a football. Um, and that, that stuff like that, that fine motor skill coordination, like don't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't uncoordinated by any means, but I'm just like relative to the other kids. Like I didn't, wasn't exceptional in those areas. I was exceptional in terms of strength and speed. Um, but it wasn't until high school that that stuff came. Um, and so, so consequently, like I didn't play a lot of basketball. I played a few times growing up. And in fact, I didn't, I got cut from the ninth grade basketball team. I got cut from the 10th grade basketball team. And then I made it in 11th grade. Um, and so, and then I, I played baseball growing up and then I stopped playing baseball in eighth grade. And then my senior year of high school, I did track. Um, but throughout all of this, football was always, you know, clearly, you know, a mile ahead of any other sport. And you played a lot of basketball as you've gotten older. And if you could go back, you know, the skills that you have now, or I don't know, I haven't played with you for five or so years. So the five years ago, at least Brian Keel, if you could take that skill to your high school, you'd be a, you'd be a pretty good player on that high school team. It's dude, it's, I had this conversation with someone the other day. Um, I am so much more skilled now at, 38, I turned 39 in, in uh, two months than I was at 18 or 19. And that's, it's usually not the case. Like, like I, right now I would absolutely smoke 18 year old Brian yeah. in basketball. And I, like that's not the case for most 
for most people at 38 versus 18, especially in a sport like basketball. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, I play a lot now and I, I literally am like, I'm the best basketball player I've ever been right now at 38. Uh, partly because I play so much and, you know, and partly because like when I was younger, I wasn't very good. So, but it's well, just kind of a funny thing. I'm going to try to remember this just in the last two years. I still play a little bit just in the last two years. I felt my coordination slipping, which has been odd. Like really? when I'm dribbling, like the ball's not where, you know, it used to it be. Normally is. And uh, I, I have another friend who's 42 who knows the same thing. So I wonder if you'll be, you know, in your mid forties before that happens to you, but I'm going to, forties that magic follow up number. So that. we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> follow up well, with me. Okay. So, so you're, you're, really progressing in football you're in salt lake city playing at brighton high at what point did the recruiters start paying attention yeah so um like in terms of me so i was always a really good football player but i wasn't like dominant in a sense where like when i was in little league if you would have asked the coaches oh is that kid gonna go to the nfl like they wouldn't have said oh that's an nfl player um, if you would ask me, I would have told you, yeah, I'm going to the NFL. Um, and then, you know, in high school, um, a lot of people start as a sophomore in high school. I had some friends. I, I literally, um, I had my 20 year high school reunion last fall. And I saw one of my, one of my best friends from high school team captain with me. And he literally almost, almost the whole night, he just, he loved the fact that he started at linebacker as a sophomore and I didn't. And he loved, like, he had that over me. And um, so anyway, you know, I was okay as a sophomore. I was pretty good as a junior. I started as a junior and, and that's, I, I received a scholarship offer after my junior year. Okay. And, and then it was, it was my senior year where I really became like, like just took a big leap and was dominant. And I actually was talking about this, I think, with my wife or somebody else the other day. Like, my senior year of high school was probably the first year where I was, like, 100% best player on the team. And there might have been maybe one or two years, like, in Little League where you could say that. But it, even if you could say that, it was close. But it wasn't until, like, senior year of high school where I was just in a different different class with 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 everybody. and and um, and part of that is like I was a little bit of a late developer that coordination wise, like we talked and, and I, I put it in the work like I just I worked and then also, you know, we've talked, I had really good genes. So I think if if uh, we pulled 100 people who knew you and they said, you know, what are you know, what's the most common trait that you would use to describe Brian or what, you know, what personality trait would most describe Brian? I think most people, at least in their top five traits, would list confident. And so I think it's interesting, you know, whether it was your, you know, whether it was Gary that, you know, told you from day one, like you're going to be an NFL guy, whether it was just yeah. from your genes of Maurice and Amy, where that's just how you came. Uh, but that confidence, you believing in yourself. Yeah. Like obviously genes matter mu so much. You can't just take any old person and turn them into an NFL football player, yeah. but you do need to have the confidence to put in the work and believe that you can make it. Yeah, it, it, it is. There's like the old nurture nature and it's both. It was a hundred percent both. And, and that's, 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 that's how it was with me. And I, I definitely, definitely gained that confidence. And, and if you talk to my dad, Gary, like he would 
100%, like he will take credit that I made it to the NFL and, and you know, the, you know, the, the work ethic and the discipline and the belief and all that stuff. And, and, you know, he will, with a twinkle in his eye and a wink, let you know that, that he helped facilitate that. And, and the same thing with my brother, Ed, um, my brother, Ed played in the NFL for a few years. And, um, and so the same thing, you know, he, he, he loves my dad. He loves to take credit for that. Um, which, and, and honestly, he, he, like he deservedly like he yeah. he put the framework and facilitated a lot of things for us to then take the genes that we were given and make it happen you know it is crazy for as old as our species is maybe not that old in terms of like the you know eternities but we still don't know how much is nature and nurture and it's tricky because you don't want to put too much on either like if you put too much on like just confidence and belief you're setting yourself up for failure but man, you can do a lot if you really believe in a persistence. So I think that's just so interesting, especially, you know, as, as your dad's thinking like, you know, I think this, this nurture matters a lot and it does. <laughs> it, it does. And it, it's, there's so many traits that my dad has having raised me that I see in myself. And then it's just fascinating to then see my birth dad, Maurice, and now, I mean, it's, it's been, oh, 13 years now of knowing him and cultivating a relationship with him, but right from the jump, like here's this, you know, biological progenitor who I literally never saw for 25 years of my life, looks, walks, <laughs> works out just like me. I mean, there's so many like little idiosyncrasies that I have that came from him and like, I, he was never there. And it's just, you know, I, I, I write down, um, I write down, I, here's a funny story. Okay. Um, he has a, a really good friend, um, like a really, really good friend so much so that this friend named his son after Maurice and, um, um, and, uh, so it's big Mo and little Mo. Right. And, uh, and so his, his son, little Mo is in, uh, is in, um, high school or coming into high school. Anyway, so this friend, he texted, he texted us the other day and he, he's, he said that he wanted a picture of our workout journals. And because he knows that some of us keep a journal of every workout we do. And so one, one of the things that I do, and I did this before I met Maurice, is I wrote down what I did in my workout. And it's something that he does. And I literally have a bunch of these journals right and so it's just kind of interesting um you know just these little idiosyncrasies and and you know so i took a picture of my thing and sent it in this text thread but um yeah there's there's so much to genes and there's also so much to environment and it's just you know it's a combination of both so that's really interesting i've lifted a lot of weights now some of my teammates from snow and high school might tease me and say well you didn't lift that much weights but over the course <laughs> of my career and especially at BYU like I hit the weights hard at BYU and got pretty strong for my size <laughs> I never once considered keeping a workout journal this is not like uh, I, I mean I guess we had to submit stuff for you know coach Omer or whatever but yeah you know I never I've, ne I've never kept a workout journal people make fun of me so I, I work out at the gym here it's called lifetime it's like a you know a big change gym there's tons of people there um i go there almost every day um and and i have my little red 
my little red journal and and I and and so people like you know people that I know they'll see me writing it and they always come up and, and make fun oh what are you writing in your diary you know and they, they kind of make fun of me um but I, I love it like it's just something that I do and, and it's literally in my genes you know it's something that he does and has done and I you know never I started doing it before I even knew it that's fascinating and I actually the very first episode of this entire podcast was about journals like I I love to write in journals and read journals my parents my wife um my own and so yeah that's just really interesting like I workout journals maybe they're common in the fitness world but certainly not that common in the football world so yeah just fascinating the the role that jeans played there okay well you're getting recruited then um you've got BYU that wants you to go play for them any other schools that were interested in you did you consider any or I mean were you just pretty locked into BYU it's actually an interest, it's a very like unique um, recruiting situation. Um, so I, I didn't get recruited a lot uh, by very many schools for football. Um, in terms of like phone calls, I got a million letters for school because uh, I had really good grades and, and, uh, and, I, and I had good, good ACT scores. And so uh, um, I had all sorts of letters from these prestigious academic institutions. Um, but in terms of football recruitment, I, I got letters from a lot of football schools, but I only got like actual recruitment phone calls from three schools, BYU, Utah, and Harvard. Yeah. Really weird. Um, not even like Utah State never even called me. Um, none of the Pac-12 schools called me. It was just those three schools that called me. It's kind of interesting. Um, and so Utah offered me um, right, like right before the summer my of my junior year, and and then a week later BYU offered me, and then my my dad made me call them back the next day and commit, so that they because he was worried they were going to pull the offer or something, and uh, and so I committed. I committed the next day. Never got. Any more it. phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was it. So well, you go to BYU and uh, let's see, you would, your first year would have been 2002 playing or 2003. Your first year playing was 2003. I think I was at a junior college at the time. So I don't remember your freshman year. It might, it was 2002. 2002. Yeah. Okay. So your first year was 2002. Yep. And if I remember right, you ended up playing a little true bit freshman. as a true freshman, right? Yeah, I played, I did. I played, um, I played the first couple of games. Funny story. So, uh, BYU's head coach Kalani Sataki, he was the 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 GA graduate assistant, and um, BYU played a a JV game against Dixie, and I played in that JV game, and they were like at a DNs, and so Kalani comes up, he's like on the sideline of the game, and he's like, "Hey, Kill, you want to go in at DN?" And I was like, "Sure." So I go in at DN. I had like four sacks, and so. <laughs> They moved me to DN. And so the next week, the next regular game was against um, Hawaii. And I played like five snaps at DN and I had a sack. And and so I for the first couple of games of the season, I played DN and I got pretty decent playing time. And um, it's actually something that still to this day bugs me because we were in a game, we were playing Nevada and our middle linebacker, I won't throw him under the bus by saying his name, but uh oh, come on we all, we all know who it is <laughs> actually we probably we probably don't <laughs> well i know who he is i'm sure yeah, but I'll, I don't... 
I'll know throw him under the bus. It was Paul Walkerhurst. Um, okay. Paul, Paul so was he, a good player. Big, tough it was, guy. It was Paul. So this was his second year. He, he was a second-year player, and I couldn't hear his calls. And so I was like, what are the calls? And he goes on the sideline and tells the D coordinator, Ken Schmidt, that I didn't know the defense. Uh, and so Schmidt was like, Jill, you don't know the defense? I was like, yeah, I know the defense. I just can't hear his calls. So anyway, long story short, I was playing quite a bit, and then I didn't play at all. And, uh, and so the whole middle of the season, I didn't play. And then they moved me back to linebacker. I was like killing it in practice. And so then I started getting reps in the actual games at linebacker. And my best game of the year was the last game against Utah. Um, I was the subway sub of the game. You know, I, I still remember that. But anyway, um, after the season's over, the, 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 this uh, linebacker coach slash D coordinator, Ken Schmidt, comes up to me. He's like, well, Kiel, probably should have just gone with you the whole time. And I'm like, what yeah, good does yeah, that no, do me no now? Kidding. Season is over. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. So anyway, yeah, that was my freshman year. That was 2002. Okay. Then I went so, on my mission. Yeah. So uh, where'd you go on your mission, and, and why did you decide to? Why did you decide to serve a mission? And did you ever consider not serving a mission? And uh, let's go through that a little bit. Yeah. So I, um, all all four of my older brothers went on a mission. My dad went on a mission. It was always like. You know, just from the time, I don't even remember when I made that choice, but I was a little kid and always wanted to go and it was time to go. And um, it really wasn't that tough of a choice because I had always decided that I wanted to go. And so, you know, I, it was, I, I wish that it was as it is now. Now you can go when you're 18. At this time, you couldn't go when you're 19. So with my birthday, I had a late birthday. So I had that whole year before. Um, it would have been better to have gone right out of high school and then had all my years in college together. but. Um, but it was awesome. I, I went to Toronto, Canada and, um, aside from losing 20 pounds, uh, which took a while to gain back after I got home, it was, it was just a phenomenal experience. I loved it. Um, it was really hard, really cold, uh, but loved it. Absolutely phenomenal time of my life. Have you been back to Toronto? Do you keep in touch with anybody from Toronto? I, I need to be better at keeping in touch with people. Um, there are a few people that I occasionally talk to um i went back a year after i came home so that was 2006 and i haven't been back since then it's literally it's on my to-do list i want to take my wife and my kids to toronto i want to take them to niagara falls and it's on our list we'll, we'll make it there one of these years okay so this is a like an impossible question you spent two years there it's an amazing time in your life if you had to summarize like you know the most important lesson you learned from that time period could you come up with maybe one or two from my mission? Yeah, from your mission, yeah. Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, I would say just uh, be humble and work hard is probably probably the best things that I learned. Um, I, I guess, so like the humble part of it, like I, I it, was, it was great. To, it was like a mission for everybody. It's a humbling experience. And it was really humbling for me and, and really helped me. Um, you talked about my confidence and, you know, I've always flirted with cockiness and confidence, which is good, but uh, humility is important. And so I, I was able to learn a lot of that on my mission. And then I, I guess if there's one thing that, you know, just to, to sum it down to one thing is hard work, like hard work's everything. And I definitely learned that on the mission. Um, I learned that like with what I was supposed to do as a missionary. And then also like just with sports, um, 
I lost 20 pounds, but I, what I was able to keep was, was my quickness because I, I ran stairs almost every day and I jump rope every, almost every day. And, and so when I came back, I came back, um, my first day back was July 1st and practice started like three, three, roughly three weeks later. And, um, and I was just thrown right back into it. And I didn't have the quote unquote mission legs that most missionaries have because I, I ran stairs and I jumped rope almost every day. And so anyway, hard work, hard work is everything. So some listeners uh, don't probably know much about missions. So if you're describing, you know, humility and hard work, what's, what's the goal of the mission and, and why was hard work and humility so important to you while you were on your mission? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints and there's, 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 it's not a requirement. A lot of people think that it's a requirement, but um, it's not a requirement, but it, you could call it an expectation that young men serve a mission. And so, like I said, it's not required, but it is, you know, culturally people, ex- it's a kind of expected. If you can, um, yeah. And then if you're physically, mentally, and emotionally able, yep. hundred yeah. percent. And so, um, so, so it's expected to go on a mission. The, the, the goal of the mission is, is um, it's first just service, but um, ultimately it's to, to proselytize and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the goal of a missionary. And you do that any way you can, whether that's shoveling somebody's sidewalk or sitting down and teaching them actual gospel principles and gospel lessons, and then ultimately leading them uh, to baptism to follow the example that Jesus did when he was on the earth of getting baptized. And so to answer your question about humility, I, I cockily as an 18 year old had this idea that like, well, you work hard and you have success. You know, I worked hard in school. I had success in school. I worked hard in sports. I had success in sports. And so I kind of thought that I was just going to have a baptism every week and was just going to like have all this success. And and you can have success as a missionary outside of, of, of baptisms, but that's, so answer your question. Like I went a whole year getting up on time, going out there, pounding the pavement, doing all, following all the rules. Um, and I didn't have any baptisms and it was humbling. Um, it was great for me because, um, you know, you, you learn a lot and, and, and that's not what a mission is about. That's not the success of a mission is how many people did you baptize? Um, as a 15 year old, you, you kind of think that that's what measures a mission success, but in reality, it's not, it's, it's how, 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 how much were you able to learn about yourself and, and serve other people and follow the rule. There's just so many, much more that goes into it. So yeah, that's kind of the goal of the mission. And, um, for me, it was humbling and it was great. And, um, and I learned that and I just kept working hard and all, all the way to the end. And that's where it was like a great life lesson, because even though I didn't have the success that I expected in the way that I expected it, the formula is still get up every day and go to work. Yeah. And that you can take that lesson to anything in life, sports, dance, theater, school, um, family relationships, husband and wives, uh, you know, there's divorce is rampant in our society and our culture. And, and there's, you know, failure, giving up people. There's so many, there's so much of that. And I, in today's society, and I think, um, that lesson of success doesn't come the way you always come the way you expect it, but get up every day and go to work. 
just work hard on everything, including, yeah, relationships. One of my favorite quotes is from John Wooden, and he said, treat uh, friendship like a fine art. You know, how do you treat a fine art? You, you know, this isn't something that you just delicately. Yeah. And you and you work and you think about it and you spend time and effort and energy and, you know, you don't just let it happen. So. Okay, well, I, I do remember um, the first time I met you, I was at the, I was living in some uh, like little blue house off 9th East in Provo uh, with Cam Jensen and Dustin Gabriel and uh, Nate Hutchinson. Um, Did you guys and, have a name for yourself, like the Wolfpack or something? <laughs> no, that must have been another house. Honestly, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> I would tell you dead, if we didn't. <laughs> uh, we should have. Um, or maybe some of the guys did. I just, they just didn't include me, but I was okay. excited for you because I had redshirted my first year at BYU and, uh, and then my, so 2005 season was the first year that I was going to play. And, you know, Cam and some of the other guys, like we got this guy, Brian coming back who played as a freshman. Uh, so I was really excited, thought you were going to help the team and and you did. So uh, maybe just share a little bit about your BYU career. What was that like for you? We've, we've talked about your freshman year, but uh, what were the next three years like and uh, what did you achieve and and um, what did you learn? I loved every minute that I was there. Uh, I've told you, you know, we're diehard BYU fans from long ago and that's the same today. So like being at BYU, I mean, that was the time of my life, just living my childhood dream and and especially like how it transpired in 2002 was BYU's first losing season in 30 years. So it was like heartbreaking to be a part of that. And then I go on my mission. They, BYU has two more losing seasons. The coaches changed. And then 2006, that, that, or two, excuse me, 2005 that you're talking about, that was my first year back. Uh, our coach, Bronco Mendenhall's first year. And we, we kind of returned some, some prestige to the program. And then in 2006 and 2007, we took it and, you know, 11 and two both those years, um, won our bowl game. We won every game at home. We won every game in conference. Um, beat Utah, which is huge. That's the record um, so, for yeah, just in 2006. Set the record for margin of victory at home. Like, I mean, it was like every game they, we're winning by 35 points or something like that. Just getting after people. It was awesome. I just loved it. Like, great time for me. I I played as a as a sophomore in 2005. That year that you were just talking about. Um, uh, no player plays as much as they expect or want to play, and uh, you know that was me that year. I thought I should have played more, but. And then the next year, in 06, as a junior, I was a starter. And then 07, I was a starter and, and team captain and, and all that stuff. And it was, it was awesome. I just, I, 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 when I look back at my time at BYU, it is just with the fondest, just nostalgic, just Uncle Rico. We were the greatest. Just, oh, I just love it. Just absolutely cherish and just adore my time there. And when you think about Bronco Mendenhall, what do you think? uh grit determination uh discipline accountability hard work um principles like just all these old school characteristics that are lacking and and less abundant in the world today uh you know i i think of somebody who who cares about results who cares about doing things the right way i think about somebody uh, who doesn't care about the limelight or being seen or what the world thinks or what outsiders think. But I think about somebody who is all about the team and family and togetherness and camaraderie and band of brothers and, and team building 
interesting activities and super games and uh, just all those characteristics. Yeah, so Bronco Mendenhall was our head coach at BYU that helped clean up the program. When I joined the team in 2004, I was in one of my very first team meetings. It was like literally like maybe my second or third, possibly my first team meeting. Um, but a number of players had been accused of sexual assault. Uh, a different set of players had been accused of rape. Um, a different set of players had been accused of assault, battery, robbery. So just a complete disaster. And it's it's total like, you know, crisis control. And I'm like, you know, what did I get in? What did I get myself into? Uh, but then again, I'm thinking, well, I got a chance because there's going to be a lot of turnover here. <laughs> and uh, we have a we have a players only meeting. And one of the leaders of the team, you know, that so Coach Croton, the, the former coach who I love, who gave me a chance to play at, at BYU, um, he stepped out. We had a players only meeting. And one of the leaders of the team stands up and says, guys, how can you be so stupid to get caught drinking? Don't get caught drinking, <laughs> which is funny, of course, because at BYU, you, you, you sign an honor code and, and you commit to not only not get caught drinking, but to not drink. And that was the culture of the team. Don't get, you know, how stupid do you have to be to get caught drinking? And so, you know, that, that year 2004 was terrible. And then Bronco came in and just, man, he whipped that program into shape with the other assistant coaches as well. I'm glad I was on my mission during that time. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad I missed that. It was a disaster. It was a dumpster fire, as you say. Glad yeah. I was gone. So at BYU, you also meet your eventual wife. I did. And um, your listeners will be pleased to know that you played a pivotal role. <laughs> I, was, in, I wasn't going to mention that. You played a pivotal role in that. Um, uh, your listeners will be pleased to know that I saw a young co-ed on campus and she caught my eye. And somehow I, I, I either found out or whatever that you knew her. And so I got her number from you and just full on cold called her out of the blue and asked her out and you had prepped me a little bit because you had told me that she had a boyfriend. So I'm, I'm happy with you. So thanks. And I'm also mad at you because you set me up for failure. Um, you had told me that you, she had a boyfriend, they were on a break and that she would be willing to go out with other people. And so I called her up and asked her out and her, she literally said to me, well, I have a boyfriend. And when you have a boyfriend, you don't really go out with other people. <laughs> he literally said that. And that was a bruise to my cocky ego that I just, I'm still mad at you about to this day. Um, it was the first time I'd gotten gotten denied on a on a on a request. So anyway, that was that was the first time. Um, that was like right when I got back from my mission in in like the fall of '05, and I didn't end up going out with her until December 2007. So more than two years later, and I went out with her uh, for the first time, and then like I went out with her a couple times. Uh, Cause we totally hit it off. Um, and then like January 1st, I left to go train for the combine. And so, so before this, uh, before we hit record, you, you told the story about uh, <laughs> a similarity that you had with your, with your biological father. Do you want to share that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good story. So um, I was telling Nate before, uh, for the listeners, before before we hit record, I was telling, like, nurture in nature is just wild. And so um, getting ready for this this chat with Nate, I was, uh, I was, I was looking at all this different information and, you know, I told you how there was this newspaper clipping from Minneapolis. It was from Maurice's uh, second year there. And the was like a Q and a, and the reporter asked him if he had a girlfriend and um, his, his response was to the question, do you have a girlfriend? I'm going to read it. I do see someone, but I don't believe in them. If you have a girlfriend, you should get married. And it was so funny because that's literally how I viewed it in college at BYU. There was no point in having a girlfriend if you just go ahead, just skip that and get married, like either date and, or, you know, like I, so, so my whole time at BYU, I never had a girlfriend and didn't want to have that exclusivity with somebody. And then, you know, this, this girl, Jessica Bingham was her, her maiden name who Nate absolutely contributed and helped. And I'm still mad at him, but uh, absolutely helped uh, in, in getting us connected. I ended up going out with her. I left and um, we had like a long distance relationship because uh, she was in Utah and I got drafted by the Giants. I was in New York. Um, so our first date was like December 2007. And um, I ended up proposing to her in April of 2009 and we were not boyfriend and girlfriend we had never talked about marriage one time it was completely a surprise and a shock wow. to her and and she said yes and the rest is history so <laughs> so when you say you didn't believe in a girlfriend and you're you know Maurice didn't believe in a girlfriend that doesn't mean you weren't dating so you, you just didn't you didn't believe in the exclusivity basically is what you're saying correct the title and the exclusivity. Yep. Yeah, so, it's like, and it's just kind of a weird, like a weird idiosyncrasy that he has and somehow passed on to me and literally never saw the guy my first 25 years of my life. But I had that goofy, very uncommon trait. And, and so I was like my whole time at BYU, I was opposed to the idea of a girlfriend. And to, in my mind, it was like, well, you know, just, when you're ready to get married, get married. And I don't know. And that's kind of how we did it. It was, it was very, very unconventional. So you got, you know, you're overflowing with confidence. Uh, did it occur to you that uh, some women might say no to you or that Jessica might say no to you? Um, Cause you haven't even talked about this. Yeah. So it's funny. So I was literally just about to say, in fact, I needed, I needed her parents' help in setting the way that I was going to propose to her. I needed her parents' help in getting her where I needed her to be and stuff. And so I called her parents um, to talk to them about helping me. And, you know, I kind of told them like, hey, I'm going to propose to to Jessica. And her mom literally asked what you just asked. Are you sure she's going to say yes? <laughs> and to be 100% honest, like, that thought, like maybe she said no, it really hadn't crossed my mind <laughs> to that point. And it was, I was just kind of like, it was just, it was just, I don't know. I just, I, I just knew it was supposed to happen. It was going to happen. And of course she's going to say yes. And I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's foolish. Maybe that's um, too cocky or confident, or maybe it's just, you know, we were, we were destined to be together. I don't know, but it is kind of funny the way it worked out. And, and she did say, she was surprised. Absolutely. So, 
um, the way that it happened is my neighbor had a plane. And so we, we were, he, were, he allowed us to take his plane up and we were flying in the plane. When I kneeled down, um, we're actually circling, circling the Salt Lake Temple where a lot of people here get married. And um, the plane was circling the Salt Lake Temple. I pulled the ring out. You know, she's looking out the window and I kneeled down. And then she looks back at me and I said, will you marry me in that temple? And her first words were, are you serious? <laughs> and then, and then I, I said, yep. And she said, okay, yes. <laughs> and, and again, like I said, the rest is history. So it's funny that it like, it hadn't occurred to you that she would say no. It, I remember I got admitted to uh, Stanford law school, which is a whole other kind of funny story. And, and, and I know you like this and maybe I've told it to you before, but when I told Nate Hutchinson, our former teammate, then I'd been admitted to Stanford. He said, you know, I just want you to know, I don't think any differently of you. I only think less of Stanford. And like, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hutch. I've, like, never, <laughs> I've never heard that. And that is such a Hutch thing to say. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> and like, it's like, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, but I was talking to uh, Todd Mortensen. So you probably remember uh -huh. Todd. Todd was on our I played teammate. with Todd, quarterback, yeah. Total stud, ended up transferring to UC San Diego, played for Jim Harbaugh there. And just total stud went to um, played with Tom Brady, backed up Tom Brady for a little bit of Patriots and went to Penn law school and is a, is a, an attorney at a big law firm in New York city. Anyway, he had helped me with my law school applications. And so when I got admitted to Stanford, I let him know. And he's like, Oh, congrats. You know, now like you've done, you've done a really hard step now, just as long as you can graduate uh, you know, you'll be set up. And I was like, Huh. <laughs> I mean, it had never occurred to me that I might not. So you graduate, still got it. <laughs> but now that you mentioned it, like I kind of like weaseled my way in here, not through the back door, but very luckily got in. Like, huh? Maybe this uh, this isn't guaranteed. But anyway, I, I can relate in some small way to just never having. No, Nate, uh, don't sell you, don't sell yourself short to your listeners. You're you were very very belonging at Stanford. So well, I did, I worked any hard. Any listener. And you did work hard, but you also have it. So don't, yeah. Any listeners out there, don't be fooled by. Well, let me just say what this. Nate's telling you right now. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he got a seventeen. No, sorry, he got a thirteen on English in the ACT, but he got a thirty-six in math. Uh, That's so wild. he obviously, like, he struggled with English. I, I will say my my test scores were not that bad, but when I did first take the LSAT I scored in the 55th percentile so like that was that's not you know that's that's okay when you right in the middle yeah but you did but you didn't get in with that test right score. right I worked very hard yes, after okay. yeah yeah exactly okay. but okay. I can say like I, I do I do believe hey, I have hey, there I we a, go we're back to hard work I had a yeah exactly because I had a and I had a number of classmates who I guarantee they did not have to study for six months like I did but a, a lot of them did or they had put in the work you know previously when I had just kind of focused sure. more on sports. So that basically wraps up your BYU career. You're, we talked about your playing career, uh, me introducing you to Jess, <laughs> helping you to get married, you two owing me forever for your marriage <laughs> and your children. Uh, kind of, a little bit, kind of. Um, so now it's time to get to the NFL. And are you thinking, you know, like, you're going to get drafted. What are the scouts saying? How are you feeling about your NFL prospects? Yeah, it's a good question. I, so I grew up always with the hope, the dream, the goal, and also even an expectation uh, to a degree 
that being said, I mean, ultimately, there's always moments of doubt. And, you know, you have doubt in high school, you have doubt in college. I didn't become a starter until my junior year. And so, you know, there was definitely moments of doubt that crept in, uh, especially during my my freshman year as a true freshman. But my sophomore year, you know, I expected to start and I didn't. And, you know, there was moments of doubt. You know, this is, in my mind, this is derailing all of my plans, you know, when I wasn't a starter as a sophomore. Um, but yeah, my, my junior year, I, I cracked the starting lineup and I played really well. And uh, in fact, I remember, I actually, I saw this article, I think the other day when I was, when I was getting ready for, to just talk, talk about all this good old stuff. Um, there was this, there was an article, somebody, I think in the Deseret News wrote uh, during spring ball, um before my junior year when I was now in the starting lineup but the season hadn't started it's just spring ball and whoever wrote I can't remember if it was Dick Harmon whoever wrote it but they they kind of went through like each of several guys and and listed things about how they were doing in spring and he put for me he put Brian Keel and then he put NFL speed and potential and uh, I remember seeing that that was kind of like the first time externally where somebody else was like oh that guy has it you know and i i just remember besides your dad so, yeah that's what i mean externally outside of me my family my mom of course um and and yeah i felt so validated just when i remember reading that and i hadn't started a game yet and um i just felt so validated reading that um but so that was before my junior year played really well my junior year and and at the end of my junior year I started to get phone calls from scouts, NFL scout or not scouts, um, agents. agents from agents. I started to get phone calls from NFL agents and that's, it was, it was when those started coming in that I was kind of like, okay, this is, this is potentially happening. And, and then from that moment of that first phone call from an agent, uh, Fast forward to when the, the moment I did get drafted, it was like a gradually increasing confidence that like this is going to happen. And I say that because even on draft day, there's still some doubt. Like um, I was projected to be a second to fourth rounder and I went in the fourth round. So, you know, I when, when, when the second round finished, you know, and I wasn't drafted and I was, you know, then the doubt creeps in and, and then, you know, the third round and so just, you know, there, there's doubt. And then when, when it did happen, it was absolutely just one of the, the greatest feelings of just accomplishment in my entire life. I was just listening to something today, and uh, I think it was the coach for the Bills. This was just recently had, you know, everybody in the in the team room, you know, it's like everybody stand up and then it's like, you know, sit down if, um, you know, you didn't get drafted. And like everybody, you know, like a third of the room sits down and like mm -hmm. sit down if you've never been, you know, if you've been traded and, uh, you know, goes through it. And, and basically, if you've ever been cut and finally there's one person standing, it's Josh Allen. He says, <laughs> Josh, how many scholarship offers did you have coming out of coming out of uh, high school? <laughs> and, you know, Josh, like you didn't have any. That's why he ended yeah, up went to Wyoming, to yeah. Wyoming. Right. So even, you know, it's like outside looking in, it's like, oh, the NFL guys, they've, you know, they've known all along. Yeah. It's like, no, everybody's had their own journey that was filled with yeah. doubts at time. That's a good story. So you get, you get drafted. So what's that Giants call you? 
Yeah, so it's a funny story. Um, my brother, I have four older brothers uh, in the Kill family that I grew up with and that, you know, they beat up on me and all that good stuff. Um, the next oldest, the next one above me is 10 years older than me. So those four, there's a big age gap. Um, and that brother's name, Brandon, he was like the self-assigned coach of Brian uh, my whole life. Like um, now I was, another funny story. I was on my mission Christmas calling home. I'm talking to him. He asked me what I'm going to major in. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to major in engineering. And without skipping a beat, he said, that's not what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so he's always just kind of been, you know, self-assigned life guide for, for me. So anyway, you've never seen like as excited as I was, as excited as my dad was, you've never seen anybody as excited as, as this brother Brandon was on draft day. Because um, he played football and, you know, this was you know, every kid who plays football has dreams yeah. of getting drafted. And, and now his kid brother is, is potentially, you know, going to live that dream that day. So anyway, and we didn't, he, we didn't know about CTE then too. There was no, there was no downside back in the day, right? <laughs> there was no downside, no, no limiting factors. So he goes out to whatever hat store and buys 32 NFL hats <laughs> and he's got them one for every team. And he's got them lined around the living room on the, on the Mount full around the room. Okay. And so he's and whatever this is his his thing. He says, whatever team is up picking, he puts that hat on my head. And so because his whole thing is like, so then when you get drafted, you could tell the team I'm wearing one of your hats right now. Like anyway, it was so funny. So you know, we're doing it. I'm wearing these hats. And um I, I mean, I knew I wasn't going gonna go in the first round, but like during the second round, you know, we were doing it and and anyway, the draft, uh, I think back then, the first, I can't remember if the first and second round were together. I don't know. Anyway, the the third and fourth or whatever rounds were the next day. And as as time go, goes on, we were kind of like over it, over the hats. Yeah. We weren't really even paying attention anymore to the TV. And um, we were just kind of like chit-chatting, there's food, whatever. It was kind of like, I was kind of mad, like, you know, I should have gone by now. Right. So I'm kind of over it. And, and my, I almost missed the phone call. And then I think I, I can't remember if my phone was on silent, but I did feel it buzzing. Finally, I pull it out and it's like some weird number. And I didn't even, it didn't even register. Like, cause I had been so over it. It didn't even register that like, Oh, it's the number you don't know from a different area code. You know, it didn't even register. So I answer it. And it's the New York Giants drafting me. And so my brother's scrambling, trying, he grab, where's the Giants hat? Trying to get the Giants hat. And, um, and so anyway, he, you know, puts the Giants hat on my head and, and, um, you know, that was the moment. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty awesome. I wish, you know, a lot of people have that filmed video. I wish we had that video because that, that would be a pretty sweet video. Yeah. It would have been, a we don't, phone. we didn't. It would have been a flip phone video. It would have been you know, crappy, anyway, so. grainy. So you go to the Giants and who just won the Super Bowl two months before. So you're going to the defending Super Bowl champs, going to New York. Uh, you know, if you had to pick at that time, you know, your top two or three teams, like I imagine the Giants in terms of the the franchise and the location is has got to be at least up there, right? You know, it's funny. I I knew so little about uh the nfl at that point that i did i wouldn't have even known who to pick and okay. 
in hindsight, it was it was a terrible place for me to go. <laughs> right. The, their scheme didn't fit my playing style. The coaches didn't coaches like me did from yeah. from day one. They let me know it. And uh, the the G, the general manager he liked me, and he traded up. He traded up to draft me, um, because he was getting. They were like seven picks lower, and he was getting nervous that someone else was going to get me. And so he traded. I think it was a six round pick to move up seven spots to get me. He was really high on me, but the coaches didn't like me. Um, but yeah, you don't know that. You're just, you know, it's just like, oh, Super Bowl champ. That's pretty cool, you know. Like it was in New York, I, I'd never yeah. even been there before. Like it was just, it was just also just whoa. So, at what point do you get the physical and realize that you have some sort of uh, trait that invokes your medical history, and is that? what spurred you on this journey of no it wasn't um it's a weird it's a kind of a funny thing that actually really did it so well to answer your question that was my second year um so 2009 uh we played we played um it actually kind of coincided when with when all this happened but we played the broncos on thanksgiving day in 2009 your second in year. denver in denver and so that's why the medical staff was looking at who on the team had the sickle cell trait because of the altitude in Denver. Okay. And if you, if you have the, the trait, which apparently I do, then you, they kind of, you, you, it's just like monitor this person. But if you, if you have actual sickle cell anemia, then you're not supposed to play there. Um, Ryan Clark was a safety for the Steelers. He had it. He wasn't able to play in Denver anyway so that's kind of that's where it came up um and they asked me you know about my history does anyone in your family have sickle cell anemia and I I, I, I was up I don't know um but interestingly that same that right around that same time there was somebody who I, I had no idea who this person is but they posted a picture on early early version of social media I couldn't even tell you what site it was I wasn't even on it. Somebody, one of my friends, you you know, um, friend of both of ours, Zach Erickson, he saw it and sent it to me. And this person posted a picture. It was a picture of me and Zach's wife, Julie, at her graduation. And he, the, the person who posted this, um, he said, look how good I look. And then he, and then he, you know, this is what he wrote beneath the post. And he put, JK, that's not me, that's Brian Kill, but I'm pretty sure he's my uh, biological brother. Weird story. So this person was also adopted and did look pretty similar to me. Mm. And so he was just kind of joking, like, oh, we've got to be connected because we look alike. Right. And so I kind of, I can't remember if Zach knew this person. I think Zach knew this person. And, um, and so somehow I got connected and was texting with him. And it was that exchange of text that where I got the idea to look at the the height and weight uh, of my biological father, because that's the only information I had was his height and weight. And I had never thought to do this, but I, I got the idea if I can find like a roster and find a guy from Utah, the state of Utah, I didn't know what school he went to, but a guy from the state of Utah who played running back, supposedly who fits this height and weight maybe that's him that's what kind of started it all it was really like a needle in a haystack 
search, but ended up finding the needle. What? So, yeah, I thought the story was you had to look for this medical history issue. And that's where you started maybe going down like a 23andMe DNA testing. So no. it was a random. This was like pre, so it was 2009. It was pre, pre 23 and yeah, it was before that stuff. That when that stuff came out, all of my adopted siblings, they've all now found their biological families with that DNA testing using that. They've all they've all done it, but mine was the first one to happen, and it was it predated that. So my gosh, no, so it was this it was this needle in a haystack search. You had the height and weight, but were you a hundred percent certain that you're no? That was the thing, right? Because it was only a you were told that he played in the NFL, but that wasn't even yep. like certain. No, it wasn't verified. No, nope. it was so, just something they said to my parents at the adoption agency, and and there was like speculation about whether or not my dad. Gary made it up, you know, like, yeah, it was just, it was just like the story that the, the kill, kill family folklore, Brian's yeah. birth dad was the running back. So you even like, the running back, even the running back part, like, yeah, that could have been misheard, but I mean, it all turned out it all checked out, but, but yeah, it was not verified. So do you remember like, so you get, you log onto the internet, like on a, what Monday after a game, or maybe it's in the off season and you're just like, okay, well, I'm going to, start searching the height and weight of every player in Utah. Did you know University of Utah, Utah State? I forget. Was it? No. So it's kind of interesting. So when I was like, when I, I, I never really tried to find them until I really kind of got more interested in it when I was a teenager. And it's not like I ever like really went on a hunt or anything, but occasionally my mom, it was a lot of times it was my mom's idea. She'd be like, Hey, you, you know, let's, let's, let's try it. And, and, and at that time, and this, this, if I'm a teenager, then this is like 1998, 99, 2000, this is like early internet. And they, there were these adoption registry websites where you put in your birth date and then you're hoping that the other person is looking for that birth date. And then if you both register, then they connect you. And there's like a couple of those websites and we would do that occasionally. Uh, nothing, you know, it was, it was all in vain. Nothing ever came of it. Um, also when I was a teenager, my mom, she would talk at these workshops for adoption and she'd bring me along. They would ask me questions. So they'd have parents looking to adopt and then they'd have people look, you know, mothers who were pregnant, who were looking to place for adoption. And they would talk to kids who were adopted like me and, and they would ask us questions and, and, and it was that that kind of got me more interested in thinking about things. Um, but the, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, um, that's when I found this piece of paper was at some point in high school in, in a filing cabinet. And, you know, I found this piece of paper. I got, I have it pulled up on my computer right now. And it has no names on it. The top of it, it says LDS social services, adoption matching information. And so it says the practitioner's name, that's the only name on it. But then it says expected date of delivery, 22 June, 84. I was born on 16 June, 84. So just by that deductive reasoning, I was like, okay, this paper's for me. It says father, mother, age 23, mother, age 21, marital status, single, nationality, racial descent, father, black, mother, Scotch, Welch, French. And you know, so it just kind of goes down. and then. For father, it says height six foot two hundred. No way. And so, yeah, so that was, and I found that in high school. But then fast forward now to this two thousand nine, 
this guy, random guy posts this picture on the internet and I'm kind of texting this guy back and forth or, or something. I, I can't remember, but it was that talking to him where I got the idea. I'm going to look for people who were drafted from Utah. Oh, here, and here's the other thing. So on this paper, it says placement areas to avoid. It says Layton, Ogden, Logan, Orem, Lehigh, Benyon, Rose Park. So because it said Logan, that's kind of why I had never really thought about Utah State. I was born in an LDS hospital in downtown Salt Lake. So I kind of suspected that he was a dirty University of Utah player. But um, <laughs> I saw this Logan. So then I was like, oh, maybe Utah State. And so I looked in like the 82 draft, the 83 draft. And it was the 83 draft where I found a running back from Utah State. And the name was Maurice Turner. But that didn't have a height and weight. So I had to look up like an old Viking. He got drafted by the Vikings. I had to look up an old Vikings roster. And one of the, I found a roster and the roster said, Maurice Turner said 5'11", 200. So it was an inch off, which is typical because the NFL, you know, they always, every pro sport, they, they measure you short. So, but the weight was on. And so it was, it was honestly, it was just a coincidental thing. Um, and if you remember, so I said uh, we were playing the Broncos on Thanksgiving Day in Denver. And so my family came to the game and I was the day before the game, we were eating Thanksgiving dinner, you know, um, and I showed I had on my phone kind of some of this stuff I found and I showed it to my mom. I was, and it was the, the, the thing was like, look at this. This is pretty funny. Right. And um, I think I had a picture of the guy who posted that picture of me saying maybe we were brothers. And I said, look at this guy. He kind of looks like me, right? And, you know, look at this name I found, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I just thought it was kind of funny, coincidental. I didn't really think much of it. Played the game, go back to New York. And I kind of left it at that. But my mom, the next day or a couple of days later, went on a trip to California with a bunch of her neighborhood friends. And she started talking to them about it. And they, these, these women just decided that they were going to go on this wild goose egg hunt on vacation on their cell phones, Googling this guy in 2009. So it's not that great, you know, Google on your phone in 2009. And so for the next couple of days, they would like message me, um, you know, all this Maurice Turner has a son named Maurice Turner Jr. Who played at Northern Iowa, who just like, a couple weeks before that, um, or no, actually, yeah, yeah, it was a, let me think. Oh, actually, no, it was a year, a year before that, a year before that Northern Iowa played BYU and he played at BYU. If I had redshirted and been one, been near one year later, I could have tackled my brother. He played receiver. I could have tackled my brother and not known it. I was at that game. I was doing radio you, broadcasting. You, you, at you that watched game. him play. Yeah. You watched him play. He played for Northern Iowa. No way. I remember that game. So they, so they're, so they're finding, they're finding this stuff and they found a picture of him. And so they pulled it up and, you know, sent it to me and I don't really look like him. And so it was kind of like, eh, I don't know. And, um, and like, you know, a couple of days are going by and then it was like a week later is when it all unfolded. And there were like simultaneous things that happened. Um, my wife had mentioned all this stuff to her family and her brother had a teacher at school that was an athlete at Utah state. 
And he mentioned this to her and she knew the whole story. She knew about Maurice Turner, whose girlfriend was Amy Evans and she got pregnant and I was placed, the baby was placed for adoption and she like knew all this stuff, right? And while that was happening in Utah, my mom was with her friends in California Googling and 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 this same day that they they both kind of found this connection my my mom and her, her girlfriends they found his number and so they called me they're like we found his number do you care if we call him and do I you have any like, idea how they ahead. found his number just from googling they found his like whitepages.com white, or something like white that pages <laughs> yep just from googling on their phones on vacation yeah they were just totally sleuthing it out and um so you know i i i i, I was like yeah whatever you know and um at, at that point it was starting to like, in my mind, like maybe this is real because of like this other story going on from Utah for my brother-in-law and his teacher. And then, and then, so then now I'm Googling this guy's name and I find, I did find a picture of him and he had a hat, a baseball hat on. So it was, and it was, wasn't a great picture, but he totally looked like me. And so I'm sitting there with my wife and that, that happened probably I don't know, 15 minutes before my mom called saying we found his number. And I'm looking at this picture. I'm like, dude, that totally could be <laughs> my jeans, right? So then they find his number and I'm like, yeah, go ahead. You know, so they, they call him and lo and behold, it turns out to be him. And um, I mean, the way it went down, they were, they were driving in the car <laughs> and my mom's driving and her friends called him on her phone. She's got it on speakerphone. And, and, you know, he, 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 they actually called and then his wife answered Karen. And then she said, let me have him call you back. So, so he called them back and, um, and in, in the way, I guess they said, Hey, this is weird, but did you happen to play football at Utah state? And he said, yeah. And then they said, um, did you place a, a baby for adoption? And he said, you're kidding me. You're talking about June 16, 1984. And, um, and they all started screaming and, um, and, and she was my mom's friend. She was like, I'm driving with, with his mom. Let me put her on the phone. And so then they talked and then I don't, they talked for a few minutes and then, and she said to him, she said, well, do you want me to give him your number? And he said, are, are you sure that's okay? And she said, yeah, yeah. And he, and then he said, yeah, yeah. Give me his number. So then she hung up and she called me and she said, Hey, it's him. I just called him. I just nice. talked to him at 10. And I'm, I remember, I'll never forget this for my whole life. I'm sitting, I, I'm actually at the exact same chair and desk in my office in Utah right now. I was sitting at this desk and chair in my apartment in, the, in, in New Jersey when, when she called me and said that. And it was just like the room just started spinning. Like it was just like crazy, like twilight zone. Like no way. There's no way. Like just so crazy. Anyway, so she says it was him and he's going to call you in 10 minutes. Oh and God. I'm like, okay. So I hang up and like one minute, less than a minute later, my phone rings and I answer the phone. And the only way I can, I, I, I this is the way I describe it is um, if you, if you, if you've ever heard a voice recording of yourself, like a voicemail or something like that. And I don't know if for you, but for me, when I hear that, I think to myself, is that what I sound like? Because it, it sounds different than when you're just speaking um, that phenomenon, right? That's what it sounded like on the other end of the phone. It was just an eerie, familiar voice that sounded like an older, different version of my myself. 
And, um, and so it was just, I, I, every time I've told this story, the word that I always come back to, cause it's the only word that even a, approximates the feeling is it's just surreal. It was just, I mean, it just was the most surreal experience of my entire life. Like talking, I'm 25 years old and I'm first time talking to the person, you know, that brought me into this world. And, um, and he's a great guy. Like, you know, it just, cause you always wonder like, you know, did I come from a dirt bag? And you don't know, like, you don't know where you came from. And, but he was, he was awesome. Like he was the most amazing person. Um, and you know, some of, some of my siblings who are adopted, um, you know, they had, they had like terrible family situations that they came from. Some of them were adopted when they were older and, and they came from like terrible situations. Um, but so you just wonder, you know, and it turns out like, he's the greatest guy in the world. He's awesome. Um, and I, you could just feel it immediately talking to him on the phone and, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just surreal talking to him. And then, um, I, like I was, I was sitting at my computer and his wife emailed me, started emailed me pictures. Oh, cool. And the first picture that popped up was a picture of him and her, they were at a wedding. And at that point in time, he had a bald head. And I mean, it was like, it's like spitting image. And it just like, it was just like the craziest thing in the world to just look at the older version of me. It was just weird. Um, it, just, it was wild. Just one of the wildest things that I've ever experienced. Do you remember like the first thing he said or, you know, how was, what did he say? And what did you say? I mean, I know time <sighs> is going to make it difficult to remember all the specifics. You know, it's funny. Um, so I, I wish I had that phone call recorded. Yeah. Um, I don't. And I actually, so I, I ended up speaking for the first time with my birth mother a couple of weeks later, and I do have that phone call recorded. Oh, wow. Um, so I have that whole thing recorded, but with him, I don't have it recorded. And I, I, I think he said, the first thing he said was something like, Hey kid, or, or <laughs> like uh, something, something along those lines. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, I can't, I don't remember. Um, I remember, I remember a lot of the things we talked about, um, you know, he, he kind of went through everything that happened. And I mean, he, he, I told him, you know, kind of my life, like cliff notes version of, you know, where, where I grew up and what, you know, I went to BYU and you know, all that stuff. And, um, and, and then he told me kind of where he grew up. He went to Leighton high school. He grew up in Leighton and told me that, and, and he kind of went through what happened with, you know, with, with Amy and, and, and him, and he, he went through all that. And, um, I mean, it was just, yeah. I mean, we, we spoke for like two hours and it was just, was, it was just a blur. Like just, just that, that surreal word again, it just was, it was just wild. Really cool that your mom, Nancy is totally supportive of this. Cause you could imagine that's, I mean, that's difficult for a parent, right? I mean, I, I would imagine if I had adopted a child, you know, there would be some you know, maybe fear about the unknown of how is this going to affect you and maybe my relationship yeah. with my adopted child. And so I think that's really cool that she was supportive of that. When, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say when you, well, any, any thoughts on that with Nancy, did she have any reservations? Yeah, no, they, or? they um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 no, they, so my, both my parents, Gary and Nancy, they're awesome. They're amazing people. Um, 
it was it was kind of interesting so um my dad gary he didn't really know that that was this was all happening oh. <laughs> and it, it did kind of catch him off guard um which is kind of like par for the course like all the kids that they adopted like you know she's they're filling out papers and then he, he's like wait what are we doing like um that's just kind of how she rolls just full steam ahead like get on the get on the train you know and 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 to his credit he, he gets on the train um so it was it, it was a little awkward like it did kind of catch him off guard and um but it i mean ultimately it was it was fine um and he you know he's fine with it and, um there's that there's a great photo of uh like when we met the first time we met Maurice and his family. So, so th this first phone call was December 3rd, 2009. And one month later on January 3rd, the giants played the Vikings. And mm -hmm. so that's when we met for the first time. And he was and still so living in Minnesota parents, then. Yeah. He's still, he stayed in Minnesota. He was always, he lived in Minnesota. And so that's, you know, we were like, this is perfect. We can meet and all that stuff. And, um, and so my parents came out for that. And my wife, Kate came out from Utah. My wife went over from New York, and both, all three of them landed before the the team did. So they actually met him before I did. Oh wow! And uh, there's a great photo of my two dads um, of talking, and and it's just a great photo. And you know, my dad Gary, he's got a, a tear in his eye. You know, I don't know what they were talking about, but it's just it's a great photo, and. Um, it, and that's the thing that's been really amazing is through all of this, um, you know, they, they have a good relationship. They chat from time to time. And, um, you know, he's Maurice has come into town and come to family parties and, and been over to the house. And, and it's just it's just everybody is very, um, very cordial and, and has a good, positive, healthy relationship. It's just it's awesome. Like it's been it's been really great. So you get to Minnesota then. And where did you meet him? Is he waiting at the hotel? Like, where, where does this meeting happen? Yeah, so, like? yeah, it was amazing. Um, so we, I, you know, told the team kind of what had all transpired. Um, and I don't remember who I told on the team, but, um, but you know, the, they, they, they were really cool about it. And so they, they, they set up to have a room for us at the hotel. Um, so right when we got there, I, that I went right to this room and they had already met cause they all got there earlier, but they were waiting in this room. And, um, it's kind of interesting. Like my wife says that when she met him, Maurice, like and gave, she gave him a hug and she said it, it just, the word that she uses is familiar. Like it just felt so familiar. She said it felt like hugging you. Like it's just yeah. so familiar. Um, and if you look at him, he's, he's built like his, his shoulders his arm, like he's built exactly like me um it's crazy he's three inches shorter but his upper body is like identical to mine um and and so so anyway they're all waiting in this room and um and that's another thing i wish i wish we had that recorded that reunion i mean it was like the most magical transcendent um just fairy tale experience literally of my whole life like it just um yeah it was just it was amazing uh just walking in there and for the first time you see this person that, that brought you, like I said, brought you into this world. Like it just, um, it was, it was incredible. Had he been able to see or hold you when you were born? Do you know the details of no. that? 
I do I do know the details. I I have actually before doing this, I read this letter. So he, the way it went down, um, you know, he, they're at Utah State. He's he's a black Catholic running back on the football team, and he starts dating a white Mormon dancer, uh, Aggieette. And you know, so they start dating, and um, her family, you know, wasn't super happy about it. You know, he he wasn't a member of the church, and and um, and then there was also like in that time, you know, it's the early '80s in, in Utah, and there's you know, there's also interracial taboos. And um, he said they always got looks and stares and comments. Um, you know, it, it just it was just it was and it was early. For, that was like kind of when that started you know interracial couples and all that stuff so so anyways from from the get-go there's there's uh adversity to their relationship right Mm -hmm. um long story short she ends up getting pregnant and she she they 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 were like very they both have said that like they loved each other um he's told me that and and she's told me that and and when she found out she was pregnant she wanted to get married and so, so when she, when she told him that, that she was pregnant, she thought that he, that he, like, she kind of just assumed like, okay, well now we're going to get married. And, um, unfortunately he, because of all those things that I talked about, like, he just, he didn't think it was going to work. Um, he didn't think it would work out for them to get married. Um, cause they had actually, they had actually like right before, um, right before she found out she was pregnant they had broken up and she like left she kind of like left and went to she moved away um and so their relationship was kind of you know a little fractured there but um long story short she wanted to get married he didn't think it would work so so the fact that he wouldn't marry her that really broke her heart and really hurt her and then um you know, they, she came back later and said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to place the baby for adoption. And to him, like, he just assumed that she would keep the baby and raise the baby and that. And so when she came and told him that, that like blew his mind. And, and he was like, no, like, don't do, if you're not going to raise the baby, then give them to us. Like, you know, we'll raise them. Me and my mom. Right. Is that's kind of what he thought. And she's, and she didn't want that. She, she wanted the baby to have, um, you know, a stable family, a, a husband, father, or husband and, mo- uh, and and mother, man and wife. Um, so it was just, it was just a tough situation. So their, so their relationship kind of like th- this really frizzled yeah. their relationship. And I don't know when the last time they actually spoke was, it was sometime before I was born, but the last communication they had was a letter that she wrote to him um, and that's why I said I have it pulled up on my computer right now because when I spoke, one of the first day that I spoke with with Maurice for the first time, um, his his wife they, they he still had that letter and she she scanned it and, and emailed it to me. Oh, wow. And so the letter is dated the letter is dated June nineteen nineteen eighty four. I'll just I'll just like this is the start of the letter. I'm not sure where to start. So I'll get straight to the point. It's on June 16, 1984 at two twenty-eight AM. I delivered a seven pound, 15 and a half ounce, 21 and a half inch long baby boy. He was very healthy and had all his parts. Everything went really well. And, and she goes on and tells, you know, this letter and it's, um, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking letter. Oh, that's like heartbreaking. It's, it's yeah. Super, 
it's super, super sad. Um, and, 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 uh, this was kind of her way to, to, she says that in this letter, like uh, she, the, the phrasing that she uses is like the last chapter of, of our book is closed. Uh, the, the papers are all signed. The baby's headed for adoption and, um, you know, our, it's closed. Right. And anyway, like it's, 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 it's a, it's a heart wrenching letter, like for both of them, for like both to, of what them, a tough, yeah. They're tw 21 and 23 years old, just a tough situation. Um, you know, she, for her, I, I'm like, my heart hurts for her. Like um, in our, in our, our religious culture, you know, she had to bear the shame of, of an un, unwedded pregnancy that everybody could see, you know, and, 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 you know, and it's just the taboo of that. And, and just, and it's tough, you know, and, and the comment, I can't even imagine the comments and the, the looks and, and she, so she had to bear that shame um, in, in a society, in a culture that really frowns upon that, um, unfortunately. And so, and so, I mean, my heart really hurts for her. She had to deal with that and, and the, the pain of having a baby and giving it up, literally, you know, like there's, you know, immense pain that comes with that. And so like, when I look at this, when I read all this stuff, when I think about it, like my heart hurts for him, for her and my heart just, demolishes for him he's this is his son and he never he never saw me um never held me never all he got was this letter and that's why he knew june 16 1984 that's all he knew about me um was when i was born and how big i was um so kind of the inverse of what i had on my piece of paper you know the height and weight yeah. that's all he had on me um my measurables i didn't know my name or where i went or anything yeah you could have been and, in any and part he of the had country. tried any part of the country he didn't know where I went. Um, he tried to find me, but he, you know, he didn't really even know where to look. And it was a closed adoption. So, I mean, it was a lost cause anyway. So, I mean, my heart, uh, you know, my heart hurts for him. And, and that's, you know, going, going back to that phone call, like the, the, the most tender moment of the, of the entire phone call came at the very end. Um, he said, he, I mean, he, he broke down. He was just on the other end of the phone. He, I could just hear him sobbing. And he kind of composed himself and, and he said, Brian, uh, I imagine that someday uh, the good Lord uh, will bless you with kids. And he said, um, I think he was at that, at this time, he was um, 40, let's see how old, uh, 50, if he's 23 and I'm 38. So he was, he was like 50 or 48, I think at this time. Okay, so I was 20. Yeah, he was 48. He said, when you're 48, I want you to think about your kids. And I want you to think about losing one of them. And then finding them. And he, he said, Brian, I, I have been praying for this phone call every day for the last 25 years. Oh, and today goodness. the prayer was answered. And uh, like I said, it was just the most one of, one of the most tender moments of my life. Uh, just like I told you, you know, it was a, it was very apparent talking to this person who, who I hadn't met yet. Just yeah. the first time talking to him that, that he was a great person. And, um, and that was just like the epitome of it. Uh, just that moment at the end of the phone call, um, where it just really came through. Like he was, he's just a good, a good guy. Um, and what a, what a blessing, what a, what a answer to a prayer. Um, it was just, it was just so amazing. Just incredible. So just unbelievably touching and the reception just unimaginable. And so now you have 
more information on your birth mother. So how do you proceed with that? Because that that was different. That reception was different. And that was a that was a whole different set of circumstances with its own challenges. Yeah, yeah completely different. So um he obviously knew her name and you know, knew all that stuff. But like I said, they hadn't spoken since before I was born. Their last communication was this letter. Um, so he didn't know her number or where she lived or any of that. Um, and, and he like, to this day, he's still very angry, um, at the way everything went down. I mean, he, he feels like, he feels like his kid was, was, was stolen. And, um, and I, and I get it. Like, I, I feel for him. I, I, I feel, I feel for both of them. Like I, um, I understand exactly what Amy wanted for me and why she made that decision. Um, just with the perspective of our religion and our culture and wanting me to be in raised in that environment. And so I completely can appreciate her desires. And then I also, I have a father of three kids. Like I can't even fathom having one of losing them, one of them like that. So I, I just, I have empathy for both of them. Um, anyway, so he, they hadn't spoken he, he obviously knew her name and all that stuff. So he told me that, but they did have a mutual friend. So they, they had, they had a, a, a teammate of his and one of Amy's best friends got married and he was still in contact with, with that teammate. And, and so he gave me their numbers and was like, through them, you'll, you should be able to find Amy. And so, so I called up, uh, her name's Darcy. This is Amy's friend. I called up Darcy. And it's funny, like, I think back about that phone call. And if if you've ever, like, tried to just lay it on, like, you know, you're a super nice, great person. Because I, I just, I just remember, like, this phone call and just trying to act like I wanted so much for her to not hang up and, like, yeah. tell me to go take a hike. Um, but so anyway, I just spoke to her and I mean, the gist of it was like, hey, so it turns out I, your friend Amy, I'm the son that she plays for adoption and would love to get connected with her if you could make that happen. And anyway, she was like, um, let me talk with her and get back with you. <laughs> um, and I was like, and that's when I was like, okay, you know, that's no problem. I get it. You know, and it was just so nice about it. But um, so the way, the way Amy, so Maurice, like he, he told people, you know, I have three sons, you know, and I don't know where my oldest son is. Like he told people like he, he, that he, that's just how he processed it. And um, on the other hand, after I was went for adoption, Amy, um, she basically, the way she processed it was like, that's closed. And now I'm moving on with my life. And so obviously her family knew, but, um, and she told her she, a, a year later, a year is actually a year to the day um she she got engaged um her so she her her husband his name's brian too and um their I, I can't remember if it was their first or second date um one of their first dates she told them about this story and so, so anyway so he knew about what happened and so he actually proposed to her on my birthday uh, oh. my one year birthday um, and his thinking was, he thought that it was that like, that was a sad day. And like, uh, you know, let, I'll, I'm going to give you a, uh, you know, a positive on that day or, you know, that's kind of what his thinking was. So, um, coincidentally, I mean, this is a sidebar, but fast forward, uh, however many years later, when 
I proposed to my wife, Jessica, unannounced. It happened to be on his birthday. <laughs> on Brian's birthday. Completely coincidental. <laughs> if there is such a thing, right? So, um, so anyway, so Brian knew, Amy's husband knew, but they decided like going forward, they weren't going to tell people. So none of his family knew. They, when, they, when she met people, like nobody knew about this baby that she had placed. It was, you know, the, the proverbial skeleton in the closet. They had five kids and lived a great life. Their kids didn't know, had no idea. And that's just kind of like how they didn't, she didn't ever think it was a closed adoption. She didn't ever think that this day was going to happen. And so like when she tells the story, it's pretty funny, um, you know, getting ready for this podcast. I, she wrote all of this out and kind of the timeline and, and everything that transpired. And it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty awesome read, but um, uh, she, the way it happened is Darcy calls her after the same night that I called Darcy, Darcy calls her and it, it was, it was like December, you know, and, and she tells before the way Amy says it before she could even like say stop or anything like Darcy just started going like, and she just went off like your, your kid that you place for adoption. He just called me. His name's Brian Keel. He played football at BYU. He plays for the giants. And she just like, <laughs> was, and, and it just was like information overload. And so Amy, she didn't want any of her family to hear. So she went outside. And so it's like this, a December night in Utah, she's outside freezing, talking on the phone to her friend and her, again, her head spinning, like, holy cow, holy cow. Or I think the way that she writes it in her, in her memoir, if you will, is, oh my heck is what she says. Oh my heck. Oh my, I just kept saying, oh my heck. Oh my heck. Like, just couldn't believe like, is this all real? Um, so anyway, to make a long story short, it completely caught her off guard. Um, you know, she was a mess. And I remember her being a mess. And when I read through her memoir again, getting ready for this podcast, it was like, I remember it was like, well, wow, this was really tough on her. And I, and I, and I have empathy for it. You know, there's so many emotions that I can't imagine going through what she did. And she's got five kids and they didn't even know about it. And so, so on their end, they didn't know what to do. And, um, you know, time passed, time passed, time passed. And her husband, Brian, who also happens to be adopted, Oh, um <laughs> the coincidence is right so he he was like telling her like hey you know we kind of need to respond to these people <laughs> and and so and, and there anyway so it was like a couple weeks later um or 10 a week and a half later or something like that um when when she finally got up the nerve and and then i can't remember who and she had like talked to the counselors at lds family services who she went through and she had counseling from them and what do i do and all this stuff and um i think someone's one of them maybe suggested that she maybe talk to my mom first and, and so she ended up doing that she she called my mom and talked to her first and then and then and then i think the next day she texted me and uh, I remember getting this text and like, hey, this is Amy. And she wrote out, she's like, if I can get my breathing regulated, I'll call oh. you in a couple of minutes if, if that's okay. Oh my gosh. And so, um, like I said, I have that phone call recorded and I listened to it before getting ready for this, this podcast. And um, the first thing that I say to her is, I was like, is your breathing, is it doing okay? You know, I hope your breathing's all right. Um, but so, yeah, so that was a, a completely different phone call. Um, she was, it was, and it, it was, it was just, it was really sad for me. Cause I could just tell from the phone call how hard it was to do all of this. 
how hard it was to go through that and to be judged by people and the uh, you know disappointment and disapproval from her family and from friends and 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 now this dilemma of what do I do and I have these kids and and so my heart just felt for her. and so again I just I just tried to be as nice and polite and and I just everything that I did was I just put the ball in her court um, of basically like hey I you know whatever this is all more than I ever wanted and however you want to proceed or go forward like I'm just happy that you know, to have anything. So don't, and don't, you know, I, I, like I told her, I don't, I'm not trying to barge into your life and you have a life and things going on and, you know, whatever you're okay with, I'm okay with that. And it turns out that was great for her. And, and um, so anyway, that was, that was the first phone call with her. It's like, she was just like in turmoil, just couldn't decide, you know, what do I do? And, and that, when we ended the phone call, it was kind of like, there was no, I, I didn't even say talk to you later because I didn't know, like when I, when I hung up, I didn't know if I was going to talk to her again. <laughs> so it was just like, well, Merry Christmas. And um, it was, it was a very, it was an interesting phone call. So do you remember how things evolved from there? Did she call you again? Did you call her? I mean, you were trying to put yeah, so she, I, I, I just wanted to give her her space. And so I just kind of let her be. And so she texted me, um, I think that was like December 17th or something. I have this stuff written down uh, somewhere, but I think that was like December 17th ish or 19th. And so, you know, a week or so later on Christmas, she texted me, Merry Christmas. And I texted her back. And um, I just kind of left the ball in her court. And um, so, so then fast forward, like we just January 3rd, we go play the Vikings and we have that meeting. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. This is all happening at the, the same, same time. time. Yeah. And, and, um, and it was, yeah. So, so that happens. So then we get home and without saying anything to me, my mom calls her and was like, Hey, we just met Maurice and it was incredible. And now we want to meet you. Or <laughs> if you want, you know, if you want to just tell us to get lost, we'll get lost or something like that. She said to her. And, um, and so, you know, she's, she did want to meet me and she did, she did want all of that. Um, she just didn't know how to do it. And so, so I, our season ended and, um, that Vikings game was our last game. And so we came home a, uh, just shortly after that. And I think the Friday, the Friday that we got home was when we had this meeting set up, um, at my parents' house and Amy and her husband, Brian came down. And so that was, that was my first meeting my first meeting with with her and it's funny like we talk we laugh about this because it was it was so awkward <laughs> <laughs> and um and I mean I I was with them a week or so ago and we were talking about getting ready for this podcast and so I was telling her about all this stuff and, and she she's like she kept apologizing she's like I am so sorry I just I am so and I keep telling her oh. I was like don't be I, I told her, I said, don't be sorry. I'm like, every, every, it's everybody's experience is different and there's yeah. a different journey and different emotions. And, and, you know, it, it just, it works out and it's great now. And it's, you know, and, um, but anyway, so because of all their turmoil, they didn't know what to do. And, and she, she writes this in her memoir, you know, when we, when they came to the door, like she writes, we didn't know whether to shake hands or to hug. Uh -oh. And, and it's funny that like, like when she sent me that and I read it because I remembered like it was so awkward because, you know, on contrast, I had this like transcendent reunion with bear hugs with with Maurice and his family. 
and then and then this like was a really awkward like what do we do like really awkward hugs and like greetings and and um you know they came inside and we sat down we ate dinner and, wait so did and you hug or did you just shake hands then or do you even it remember? was like it was like a really awkward side hug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it was it was just awkward. Like um um yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty great. <laughs> and so yeah, the whole night was just a little it was just a little it was a little tough. And um and so um and and, and again, like I get it. Like I yeah, don't of course. I don't like it's tough. I and I told her this. I've told her this then I told her like it's I understand like there's so many emotions and, and they literally didn't know what they were going to do like with their kids and their, their neighbors and what, you know, do, do we, do we bring this skeleton, this, this big 240 pound, you know, brown skinned skeleton out of the closet or, you know, what, what are we going to do here? Like, it's just, it's tough. I get it. Um, you know, the, the night ended and, you know, and they left and we all like me, my wife and my parents, we all kind of just looked at each other like, huh because <laughs> it was just it was so different than the experience that we had before and um a couple days later she called me I missed the call she left a voicemail and she's like hey Brian it's Amy um I feel like I didn't get the greatest chance you know with you the other night uh, I there's still things I want to talk about and I just think like it would be better if we could maybe meet in just alone the two of us Oh, and and so I called her back, and I was like, "Yeah, that'd be great, no problem." And and so like a week later, I I met her in downtown Salt Lake for lunch, and it was just her and me, and it was like without other people there. That's when she kind of was able to like relax and just you know, uh, I don't know, embrace it, and and that's when when it really was able to to flow and and it was just a completely different like all the awkwardness was gone and we just we had like the heart to heart and and you know she talked told me about everything and and um and it was great like it was it was really awesome and then the week we we talked for like we sat on a bench in downtown salt lake and like talked for like an hour and then and then we met her husband brian for lunch and it was funny because he comes for lunch and he was like, so what are you guys going to do? Like, meaning, you know, is she going to tell people like, and we kind of both looked at each other like, I don't know. And and I told them, I was like, the ball's all in your court. Like, whatever you guys want to do. I basically told him, I was like, I would love to meet your kids. Um, I would love to be a part of their lives. Uh, but whatever you want to do, I'm happy with it. And so I totally just pushed the ball in their court. And so we left and and had 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 at, when we left we had the bear hugs and um it was it was it was not awkward it was great and um and i just really just kind of let her be and it's funny like when i when i read her memoir she writes like you know she was mad because i wasn't calling or texting and her husband brian would be like he's doing what you wanted he's giving you the space you know and 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 so and she writes she's i guess she was just a mess like you know tears and like just indecision and she went and saw the counselors and talked to them and finally it was um at the end of february it was like five or six weeks later i was just sitting there one night and i got a text and it says 
hey, Brian, I have five kids excited to meet oh. you. I have five kids here excited to meet you because they had just told their kids. And and that was like, for me, completely out of the blue. And, and it was and, just, it was amazing. And you're the older brother. I'm the older brother. And, you know, and it's funny, like she writes, like that was part of her reservation. Like she was worried what her kids would think of her. She was worried that her oldest son, Harrison, would feel displaced that he's not the oldest. Like she was worried, like that was just, you know, part of it. Yeah. So, so that was like, um, we went to meet them. Um, it was like the last week of February, the first week of March. I, ha I have this written down somewhere. I forget the exact dates, but, um, and the, the plan was we were going to go up there, we were eat, eat dinner with them. And then for the first hour or so, and then the rest of her family was going to come over. And, and so we drive up. And we were, I, we were late, we were running late. So they were all getting really antsy and they're all looking, they're looking out the window waiting for us. And we pull up to the house and they have written on the front window, welcome Brian and Jessica in big letters. Oh. And they got balloons. And, and I guess she had told her kids nothing about me. They, she told them that my name was Brian. And I think she told them I went to BYU, but and that was it. That's all they knew. And so, so we get out of the car and we're walking up there. And real quick, she's a cheerleader. So her, her other children are probably not six four, two forty. No, they're, yeah, they're, they're not my size. So they're, they're not my size. Their expectations um, are not. <laughs> they're not my size. And um, they're very much smaller than me and, um, and white and <laughs> I am not, and they didn't know that. So I'm walking up to the door and I guess, one of the younger ones, there's Max and Abe. I forget who said this. It was either Max or Abe said to the other one. They were like 10. And the, I think it was Abe. He said to the other one, he said, oh, it looks like he's been in the sun. <laughs> 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 because they didn't know. And um, so anyway, we come in and it was awesome. Like I give them all hugs and I had seen their pictures. Um, she brought pictures of them when she came before. And so I had seen pictures of them and I knew their names. And you know, so it was really, it was awesome. There was, it wasn't awkward. It was just really cool. Like, like, Hey, little bro, you know, I always wanted a little brother, you know, it was, it was really cool. And so I give all these guys hugs and, and um, it was, it was funny. Like we're, so we're sitting down eating dinner and one of them asked me, so what do you do? And um, cause they didn't know, they didn't know anything about me. And so I pulled up on my phone, I pulled up a picture of me in a giant uniform and I showed it to him. And he was like, you play for the New York Giants? And they were all like, just mind blown. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty funny. Like it was, it was a great moment. And, um, and then like shortly after that, uh, her family started showing up and she had told, again, she had told them um, my name, but so actually she had told, so she had told some of them uh my name my full name i'm trying to remember how it worked yeah so i think she told them my name was brian as well but but cause anyway long story short like some of them start walking in and some of them were big byu fans and like knew who i was so they walked in and they're like no way brian kill and <laughs> they had like watched me and like yeah it was just funny and so they come in and you know they give me hugs and and um, there was like this one um, cousin that, or I guess nephew of Amy, cousin of me, nephew of Amy, he walked in 
and he didn't he just knew it was brian like and he walked in and saw me and he's like he, he literally said no way brian killed new york giants i watch you every sunday and it was just so oh, funny man. um so anyway that that experience was on par with the transcendent reunion with maurice um just magical like uh talking to all these people and meeting all and they're all just great people just salt of the earth great people just so happy and pleasant and nice and just all this family just pouring in and and giving hugs and and uh just like so awesome and the the tender like the the tender moment of that whole night was when her dad he grabs he grabs me by the head and pulls me down and he kisses me on the head and he says there that was the last thing i did the last time i saw you oh my gosh and it was just uh just a, a tender moment just really really cool and so and we, we sat down sat in a circle and i kind of told them my life story and kind of told them about everything that happened and how this happened and and it was just one of those things where like nobody wanted to leave like it just we i don't remember what time we 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 left there so late and like the little kids are it's like supposed to go to bed and i think it was a sunday night and they had school and they're like you know, the, go to bed. And it was, it, it, it was, I mean, it was just, nobody wanted to leave. It was just, it was just so awesome. Like, honestly, um, I think I texted her afterward. Uh, Cause I think when we were home, I think she texted me and she's like, I hope, I hope my family didn't, you know, scare you or like weird you out. Or, you know, she just texted me something along those lines. And I texted her back. I was like, honestly, that was one of the greatest nights of my life. And it was, it was just, it was incredible. Absolutely. Just, um, like that other reunion, just just completely out of this world. My heart just breaks for both Maurice and Amy. Thinking back to that letter, like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine Amy writing that letter. Just even that first line brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. And for her to write that and Maurice to read it, but then to be able to have the reunion. And I'm just, oh, it's so touching to think about those moments and how about um, Maurice's biological, your other brothers? Did you meet them in Minnesota when you met with Maurice? So Billy and what was your other brother's name again? You said Maurice Jr. Yeah. Maurice Jr. Yeah. Maurice Jr. And Billy. Yeah. They were um, Maurice Jr. Had just, he was, he was finishing his last year uh, at Northern Iowa. And then Billy was in high school and he was already bigger than me uh, in high school. <laughs> And so uh, he was my, my little big brother and yeah, they were there. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome meeting them. And, um, and it's been cool. Like, it's crazy. Like all these, these seven, seven siblings that I, you know, never realized I had and um, seven little brothers and sisters, it's six, six brothers and one little sister. Wow. Um, so all these little brothers, um, it's been fun to watch them grow up and you know some of them were so young like 10 years old when i met them and now they're graduating from college and having kids and, and it's just yeah it's it's been really cool to to be in their lives and and, and again they're all to, to to every last one of them they're great people they are people that you want to be around that you want to associate with um they're great people and i it just it's humbling and and I point that out because that's not always the case. Like I, I have siblings where that's not the case and for their families. And so it's just, it's like, it's really humbling and it's awesome that, that, uh, and these, these people are, they're all great people, people that you want to be around. 
And so the relationships now, like how often are you seeing Maurice and Amy and your, all of your siblings? What's it like now? Yeah. Um, it's great. Um, I talk, I probably talk to Maurice the most. Um, and he's, he's big, like, so he's a, a big phone talker. Like that's just how he's always been. And he's, he stayed out in Minnesota and his mom and sister, he has two sisters. They both live here in Utah. His mom's passed now. She passed a couple of years ago, but um, before she passed, he spoke to her on the phone every day. And then he speaks to Maurice Jr. and Billy every day. And so he, like, he wants phone contact. So, so anyway, like we talk usually at least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, which isn't nearly enough for him. <laughs> um, but, but it's great. I, I always enjoy talking to him. And, you know, um, uh, like I talked to him last night. Um, I love sending him videos of my kids and their sports and all that stuff. And he just, uh, my kids, them, them going through sports and like him getting to experience that it's just, been the greatest thing in his life he just absolutely just I don't know that there's anything he loves more than 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 just cherishing that um he's probably it's funny like he's probably more excited to watch um the little kids than like because his other son so Billy's playing still play he's in the NFL he still plays yeah I watched and him he gets, just uh, last season uh, it was yeah he, night game I see him all the time Yep. So he, he's still there. This is his 10th year and he's, he gets, he gets just as excited to watch little, you know, eight year old football games as he does to watch these NFL games. Like he just, li- that's what he lives for. He lives for family, for, for family and football. This is what he lives <laughs> for. Um, anyway. So yeah, I talk to him the most. Um, but like I said, they live in Minnesota, so I don't see him a ton. They usually come out here a couple times a year. Um, and then I've gone out there a few times and I took my kids out there for the first time, um, in January, they had a, they had, it was actually terrible timing cause it was freezing cold. Um, but I took them out there in January. They had never been there before. And, and I knew like, I, I kind of surprised them and like told them, like, I, I said, Hey, guess what? I, I called them up. I said, guess what? I just bought, I said tickets to bring the kids out there. And, um, he told me later, uh, that when I told him that I was bringing the kids out there, that it, it made him cry. And he just, like I said, he just, he lives for his family. He just loves his family and loves the kids. Um, so yeah, so that relationship's great. And then Amy and, and Brian and her family, they all live here. Um, so I see them way more. I don't, I talk to them less, but I see them, see them more. So, um, so it's kind of just different. Get to see them more. They're only, they live in Ogden. So they're only an hour away. Um, so we're able to get together a lot more. Um, and it's great. It's very, very positive relationship. And I, I send them basically, you know, every, every Saturday when there's a game and if my kids do something, I film it. And one, one text goes out to Minnesota yeah. and, and one text goes out to Ogden of, you know, whatever touchdown or if they score a goal or, or whatever. And I just, I just, I like trying to keep them involved and connected and, and um it's been it's been really positive it's been it's been awesome and a text to gary and nancy or are they at the games there are sometimes they're <laughs> at the games depending depending on if it's a really good play then then i send it to them as well um to the other two it's just got to be like just an okay play that i said there just so that they they get they get to be involved but yeah there there are there are multiple texts going out and um 
we just had Mother's Day. Uh, there's there's lots of Mother's Day gifts in in our house. Uh, so for my, I get a gift for my mom Nancy. I get a gift for my mom Amy. I get a gift. My wife gets a gift for her mom Pam, and then we also get a gift for Marisa's wife Karen. And then the same thing for Father's Day. We're getting everybody's. So we're we we have to stay on it. There's uh, lots of family. So maybe this is a kind of a silly question or an impossible question, but as you think back on everything that you went through with the adoption and, and Gary, Nancy and finding Maurice and Amy, are there any lessons like one to two lessons you learned that you would most want to pass on to your kids? Oh man. I even knew, I knew you were going to ask this question and I don't have a good answer. Um, I think if I just, I look at this experience for me, um, I think if, if anything, there's, a, I mean, there's a couple things that it's taught me, but I think if anything, like what, uh, probably the biggest thing is that life is, is life is so much about relationships. And I think, I guess if there's something that I take from all of this, is I think too often in life we chase money and we chase a career and we, we chase academics and um, what we chase all these things. And what really matters at the end of the day is our family and those relationships. And I think like this experience for me, like more than anything else, that's what's driven that home. At the end of the day, that's what matters. And so I guess the lesson or the advice or whatever that, from this experience that I've learned that I would say to other people is just like put in that time and prioritize those things because that's at the end of the day, at the end of your life, when you look back, like that's what matters. Um, being at those games and and being at the barbecue and, and ha having that phone call and that connection and being there and, and being present. Uh, that's the stuff that really matters and not all this other stuff that we chase and the rat race of life that, that we're all caught up in. I think more than anything else, like for me at least, and maybe it's easy for me to say that because I have eight set, eight parents and 15 <laughs> brothers and sisters, you know? So yeah, no surprise that I'm going to say that family is what really matters. But, um, but yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's what I would say is it's, it's about family and those relationships. That's what life's about. It's interesting hearing your story and, you know, I've met Gary and Nancy and hearing this story, like, I just love them more. And I met Maurice randomly at, uh, we saw you guys in R and R one time and I may have funny. met him other times. <laughs> I think that was the first time I saw him off 106 in South Jordan. Yeah. And I love Maurice and I don't, you know, I don't know him well, but I, you know, I get a little <laughs> insight into him here and I just love Amy just hearing about that. And my heart just goes out for her and the decisions she made. And, um, and then another thought I had is, you know, you, you talk about texting your parents and, and I love this lesson. Like, yeah, what, you know, <laughs> what is there to life more than the interactions you have with other people? Um, so my, both of my parents have passed away now. And mm -hmm. if my son scores a goal or my daughter, you know, sings a solo and, and it has this like beautiful moment, I record it. And then I think like, I want to send it. And then it's like, oh, oh. Dang. I'll send it to my in-laws. 
Oh, uh, man. Which is great. And and then my siblings and I just, I texted my siblings a month ago and I said, look, I'm just, I'm, I'm adopting a new rule. You can follow it or not. But um, if I would have texted it to mom or dad, I'm going to text it to you now. So just, oh, that's great. Just count on that coming. Um, but what better lesson to take away from this? One of my favorite sayings from John Wooden is treat friendship like a fine art. And, you know, the, uh, it's so easy to take our friendships for granted. And I I think it's equally just as easy to take our family relationships for granted. So I just, I love that lesson of, and I think your, your story demonstrates it. It is all about the relationships and think about the emotions that that evoked. Like we love football, we love sports. Yeah. We've had some great moments in athletics, but how many times does it make you cry and really connect you to something bigger than bigger there's nothing bigger than relationships maybe one last thing i had a a friend of mine uh engineer worked at los alamos lab in new mexico where the atomic bomb was developed and you know i don't know well i I don't know hardly anything about quantum entanglement but apparently (laughs) somehow particles can interact with each other instantaneously regardless of the distance right mm-hmm. and uh, that's the you know the the basis of quantum computing and uh he's convinced that love somehow you know love with people with you know these relationships that principle how you know is, is able you're able to be connected to people through time and space instantaneously or, or in ways that you know other matter doesn't interact so um I'm so grateful I got to chat with you. This was awesome to hear your story. And again, my heart goes out to just everybody in your family. And I'm just so happy that it ended the way it did. So maybe I'll give you the last word. Yeah, the last word is is God bless every single one of them. Um, they are amazing people. And I could spend a podcast talking about every one of them individually. Amy, Maurice, Nancy, Gary, they're to, to, to every one of them are just incredible people. And, um, I just like, like hit the lottery. I mean, to have two sets, you know, like all these parents that are just awesome. Like they're just, they're amazing. I just, I feel very blessed and, and, um, and they're awesome. And I guess the last word is, is, uh, just remember to people like good things come to those who wait. Um, sometimes it takes 25 years, um, but good things come to those who wait. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. My heart goes out to all of Brian's parents as I think about the emotions they must have experienced throughout their lives. But I also admire and respect each of them, and they all played such an important role in raising such a wonderful, successful person. As Brian thought about his 15 brothers and sisters, and his eight parents, I love the lessons he shared. That the one thing that matters most in life is relationships. Too often we chase money, a career, academics, etc., but what really matters is our family and relationships with others. As Brian said, we need to put in the time going to games, being at barbecues, making those phone calls, and being present. And if we do all that, eventually good things will happen. It might take decades to reap some of the fruits of our efforts, but as Brian said, good things come to those who wait. And those good things are our relationships. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. 